Well, good morning. That's pretty good. You guys are awake. I would like to think that if I had been around when Jesus was doing his ministry, that I would have stuck with him to the very end, even when other people ran from him, when all of his disciples ended up fleeing from him. I would like to think that I would have been one that would have would have stuck with Jesus, but I, I'd be naive to think that. I think I would have been just like they were. For a while, Jesus' ministry was so exciting, I think, for the disciples and for other people. He had massive crowds. He was very popular. He was doing miracles. He was doing teaching. And really, everybody loved Jesus. But there came a point in which Jesus was betrayed and arrested, and suddenly there was a cost involved with associating with Jesus. And you have people like Peter who said, I'll stick with you to the very end. And he ended up denying Jesus three times. And to think that I would have been someone that would have been loyal to him in the midst of that is probably not realistic. And partly because I realize that I have, I have backed down on lesser things. I've been silenced by lesser things. For example, I shared last August how my wife and I went to London a few years ago. Our daughter was part of a WVU exchange program. She was going to be there for several months, and so we thought it would be fun to go over and see her. And one day, we decided to go tour the Tower of London. And we were standing there with a group of people, and the tour guide decided to kind of build some rapport, and he asked, where are you all from? And most of the people gathered there were from different countries throughout Europe. And then he asked, are any of you from the United States? And different hands went up, and he said, where are you from? And people threw out there the state that they were from. And I was getting ready to say, I'm from West Virginia. But before I got it out, the tour guide said, at least none of you are from West Virginia. <laughs> I thought, what? <laughs> and then my wife raises her hand. She was, she's getting ready to say, we're from West Virginia. And I said, no, 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 no. She said, why? I said, I don't want, I don't want anyone to know. You know, I love... I love the state of West Virginia. I have thanked God often for, for living in such a beautiful state, but suddenly there was a cost involved. I'd seen how they laughed at it, which was a little bit surprising to me because in unison, everybody laughed. Like it was really, really funny. And I, and I thought, well, that's fascinating to me because in our country, nobody knows that West Virginia is even a state. <laughs> it's a Western Virginia. And here they're laughing about it, and when there was a cost involved, suddenly it's like, I don't want to be identified with it. And I think the same thing is true with Christ many times, and with Christianity, and with our faith in a culture where it's becoming increasingly less popular to be called a Christian, or to identify with Christ. Now today we're going to pick up our story on the final week of Christ, and I want to talk about the fact that everybody, everybody turned away from Jesus. And the people that turned away from Jesus really represent different groups of people or different reasons why people turn from Christ. But I want to look at this because I think they relate to people today. And 
Even though we don't have the, the opportunity to go 2,000 years back, we today have an opportunity to say, I'm, I'm on his side, and I'm a Christian, and I will not be ashamed of it. I will not be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to save. Now, as we begin to talk about this, I want to lay a little bit of the framework for us again. I want to, I want to talk about what happened the different days leading up to the arrest and and crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so the Sunday of that week, the beginning of that week, Jesus presented himself as Israel's Messiah by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. He was fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy and the clearest example up to this point of his ministry where he made it clear, I am claiming the title, I'm the Messiah, I'm the King, a descendant of David. And that happened on that Monday. It was a two-mile trip from Bethany. Jesus had been staying with his close friends, Mary, Martha, and, and Lazarus, and he sent them to get the donkey, and he made his way into the city. That was Sunday. On Monday, Jesus went into the temple, and he threw the merchants and the money changers out. He cleared out the temple. He said, my father's house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Also on this day, Jesus proclaimed a, a curse or, I don't know, just a, he spoke against a fig tree that was there that didn't have any fruit. He basically said, will you never bear any fruit again? That happened on that same Tuesday. It's not that he lost his temper with the tree, like I wanted some figs and they're not there, so goodbye fig tree. It was intended to be a picture of what was going to happen to the nation of Israel for rejecting him, fruitless Israel. There should have been a different response to him. On Wednesday, Judas conspired with the religious leaders to betray Jesus. And this was predicted in the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, the exact amount of money that Judas was paid to lead people to Jesus to arrest him is recorded hundreds of years ahead of time. Judas accepted the money. It was also on this particular day that the disciples noticed that the fig tree had died. Like they came by and there's that same fig tree and it had completely died, it had withered. On Thursday, Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples and Ben talked about that Last week, this was also the night that he and his close friends, his disciples, made their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is really where we're going to start our story tonight, is we're going to look at the different groups of people and how they responded to Jesus. Of course, everybody turned from him, but for different reasons and in different ways. But our story begins right after Jesus celebrated this Passover meal with his disciples. He's probably still sitting there with them. And he shared some things with them. And the first group I want to focus on is those disciples. The disciples deserted Jesus because they were afraid. They deserted him because of the cost involved suddenly with associating with him. And of course, this took place in the Garden of Gethsemane. But Jesus predicted ahead of time that this was going to happen. In Matthew 26, beginning in verse 31, we read, Then Jesus said to them, Tonight... All of you will run away because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. 
But after I've been resurrected, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, even if everyone runs away because of you, I never will run away. I assure you, Jesus said to him tonight, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Sometimes we just don't know whether we're loyal or not. We think we are, but we're not. Now, shortly after this conversation, after Jesus told them this was going to happen, they made their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus was praying, and suddenly Judas shows up with a mob and their torches. And we read in Matthew 26, 56, then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. They did exactly what Jesus said they would do. Now, I want to mention two observations about this part of the story. The first one is this, that it... It demonstrates to me that Jesus believed that the Old Testament was the Bible, the Word of God. It was true. The reason Jesus knew that they were all going to flee is because he read it in the Old Testament. Again, it's found in Zechariah. But he knew that this was the case. In Zechariah 13 and verse 7, strike the shepherd, all the sheep are going to... To flee, and, and throughout Jesus' ministry, it's real clear he kept tapping into the Old Testament. He said, haven't you heard what God said through Moses? Have you not heard what God said through this person? And so I'm just saying he had, he had this view of the Bible that I think we should share. He believed it was indeed the Word of God. But the second thing I want to just highlight about the disciples and, and running in fear is that there's a hopeful aspect of this particular story, and that is that Jesus said, you're all going to run away, but after the resurrection, I'll meet you in Galilee. Now, they didn't know what he was talking about. What do you mean after the resurrection? But he basically said, I'm going to see you again on the other side. And that's encouraging to me because with the exception of Judas, their betrayal was not fatal. They ended up meeting again. And I'm encouraged because there have been times where I was ashamed. One of the first times I could think of it was when I was in high school and I, I, I got these stickers that I put on a notebook that were showing my faith. And one of them was based on the Coke slogan at the time. You know, it said, Coke, it's the real thing. And I had a sticker that said, Christ, he's the real thing, using the same font. Someone looking at it would think it's Coke, and then they'd realize, no, it's Jesus is the real thing. And then another one said, Jesus saves. And every day, every day, I was tempted to hide those stickers. I'm, I know I put them on there, but the question was, do I let my notebook sit on top, or do I bury it with books? And sometimes I buried it with books, sometimes I put it on top, but it's sometimes hard to stand up for Christ to say, well, I'm, I believe in Christ, or I'm a Christian. It's just difficult to do sometimes. But the disciples all deserted Jesus because they were afraid. But again, there's hope. I think if we've blown it, there's still hope for us. Second response to Jesus was that of the religious leaders. They rejected Jesus because they had their own agenda. They had their own plans. They had their own dreams, their own desires, their own power. They had their own idea of the way things should be, and then you get this upstart, this Jesus shows up. He's a, 
he's a simple carpenter and he begins performing miracles and proving that he was sent by God. And he begins to lead the people back to God and they're watching this and they get jealous. They saw that their power was being threatened, that Jesus was coming to upend all of it and they did not like that. And so as the crowds grew larger, they became more and more jealous and they were without excuse. Jesus proved himself to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. He proved himself time and time again. It was clearly just hardness of heart. I do not want to believe they were protecting what they had. And so we pick up the story in Matthew 26, 59. It says the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they could not find any, even though many witnesses came forward. My study Bible indicates that the Sanhedrin was the supreme council in Jerusalem. It consisted of 70 members. It was based on, actually, Moses in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, as Moses was leading the Israelites, he just felt overwhelmed. And so God said, well, select some people. And so 70 men were chosen, and God put his Holy Spirit on all 70 of them. And so when Jesus comes along during Jesus' day, the Sanhedrin was a group of 70 people. But notice the way this is worded. The chief priests and whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus. They didn't want the truth. They were looking for false testimony, so they put people forward, and the people they brought forward kept contradicting each other. And then finally, a couple guys came forward and made a, a statement, and the high priest said, okay, Jesus, what do, you, what do you say about that? You heard the witnesses. What do you say about that? And Jesus said nothing. And then the high priest pulled out his authority card, he said, I charge you before God to tell me, are you indeed the Messiah, the Son of God? And this was his answer in verse 64 of Matthew 26. You've said it, Jesus told him, but I tell you in the future you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he's blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and beat him. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah. Who hit you? Now, in response to the question, are you the son of God and, and are you the Messiah? Jesus didn't even say, I am. All he did was he quoted some verses from the Old Testament, but those verses are incredibly powerful. They come from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. If you want to know who Jesus is, go to Daniel in the Old Testament, written hundreds of years before he was born. Daniel describes a scene that takes place in heaven where a person who's called a son of man, in other words, he looks like a man, comes into the very presence of the Almighty God and he's given all authority. Of course, after Jesus rose from the dead, he said, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. And so Jesus just quoted from Daniel. He let the word of God indict. 
Now, by way of application, I think there are a lot of people that are threatened by Jesus. They view Jesus as competition to their plans, competition to what they want to do. Over the years, I've had a lot of people that they were given a choice of Jesus or something else, and they chose something else. I remember a conversation I once had with a private investigator. I shared Christ with him. I said, would you like to put your trust in Jesus to be your savior? He said, no, and I said, why? He said, because of my job. And I said, well, what do you do? He said, well, I'm a private investigator. I carry a gun. I might have to kill somebody. And I said, okay, why won't you put your trust in Christ? He said, well, I don't think Jesus would want me to kill someone, so I won't become a Christian. Now, I tried to persuade him that that was not a condition for getting right with God. You just need to put your trust in Christ. But he felt like there was, if I put my trust in Jesus, it'll change everything. Jesus might ask me no longer to do this thing over here, and he was unwilling to do it. And that was where the rubber meets the road. And I think sometimes we look at Jesus and we say, I don't want you to ruin my plans. You know, I've had people tell me before, I'll become a Christian, but later in life, I think, well, boy, I hope you don't die first. We don't know what later in life means. We don't know what the future holds. But the religious leaders rejected him. They had their own agenda. The disciples deserted Jesus because they were afraid, and then these leaders rejected him because... They viewed him as a threat to what they wanted to do. But let's continue the story. The religious leaders bring Jesus to Pilate. The reason they did that, Pilate was the civic leader, the governor of the region. The reason they did that was that under Roman law, which the Jewish people were under Roman rule at the time, Roman law indicated that the Jewish people were not allowed to put anyone to death. Capital punishment was forbidden. That's reserved for us. And so they decided Jesus needed to die, but they couldn't do it, so they bring it over to, to, to Pilate. And Pilate begins to interview Jesus. And Pilate becomes convinced that Jesus is innocent. In fact, he even saw the motive behind the arrest and everything. In Mark 15 and verse 10, it says, for he, Pilate, knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. It was envy. They knew it was because of envy. He knew it. Now, this is where we get into the problem with Pilate. He was in a position to do something good and do something about it. He knew this was the case. Now, at first, he tried to, to get Jesus released. And it didn't work. And then he put out a, an option Another option to release Jesus. See, during the Passover season, Pilate was in the habit of releasing one Jewish prisoner, and so he had this guy named Barabbas, and then there was Jesus, and he said, well, you know, my custom is to release one of these in celebration of this uh, Passover event. Which one do you want? And of course, the religious leaders said, well, we want Barabbas. And the whole crowd was riled up, and they, of course, they just went along with the flow. That's what the crowd often does, just go with the flow. Nobody wants to stand up and, and say what they really think many times, and so Barabbas was let go. Then he asked, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And they shouted, crucify him. And Pilate said, why? What has he done wrong? And they shouted louder. They drowned him out. Crucify him. Crucify him. 
But we see the reason why he did it in Mark chapter 15 and verse 15. Then willing to gratify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. That's what it was about. He wanted to please the people. My point with Pilate is this, the civil authorities lacked the courage to treat Jesus justly, to do what they were entrusted to do. They caved to the pressure of the crowd. Instead of doing the right thing, he did the thing that would be the popular thing, which is a problem. If you're in a position of authority and influence, you're charged to do the right thing, not the popular thing. Now, one interesting thing about the story of Pilate is that his wife sent a message to him saying, don't touch this guy. She said, I've suffered greatly from a dream about him and he's innocent and you need to let him go. That's what his, his own wife. Pilate should have listened to his wife. That's good advice, by the way, period. It's just good to listen to your wife. But there's no doubt in my mind that Pilate was superstitious too. He knew this, this was a sign and he had an opportunity to say, I know that you, you're doing this out of envy. I know your motives are, motives are wrong. But he wanted to gratify the crowd. He ended up being a people pleaser. And so Jesus was led away and he was flogged with a whip or what's called a flagrum. Let me show you a picture of what it looks like an illustration. A, the whip would have had a wooden handle and it would have leather strips coming out of it. And then on the end were small bone pieces that would be sharp. Some have suggested glass would have also been attached. And then these little metal balls that would bruise. It would come across his back. A doctor by the name of Truman Davis wrote a book titled The Crucifixion of Jesus, The Passion of Christ from a Medical Point of View. He said this is what it would have been like. The heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back, and legs. At first, the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. Then, as the blows continue, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. Others say that his bones would have been revealed. If you saw The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie, people were very disturbed by the image of Jesus. Uh, it, it was every bit as bad as what was illustrated there. Old Testament says he was marred more than any man. Why do I mention this? I want you to see the horrible injustice. I want you to see what Pilate did. Because he listened to the crowd instead of doing the right thing. That's what Pilate allowed to happen. And then, of course, after all of this, the soldiers had their way with Jesus. They put a robe on him. They found a, some thorns and wove it into a crown and pressed it on his head. Then they beat it into his head and they, they mocked him. Our king, our king. And they hit him in the head with reeds and... And then Jesus had to carry his own cross to Mount Calvary, and I wonder what that was like with the back, his back the way it was. Can you imagine that? And he collapsed, of course, under the weight of it. Oftentimes, uh, 
people that were beaten such by the Roman soldiers didn't live. See, the Romans didn't have any restrictions about how many times you could use that whip, but the Jewish people did. The Old Testament law said it has to be no more than 40. You can't do it more than 40 times. And so in the Jewish mind, what they did was 30 or 40 minus one is how they viewed it. You can do it 39 times. Don't do 40 because you're getting to the limit. 39 times. But the Romans had no such restriction. And so Jesus carries his cross with the strips of skin and he falls down. He can't even do it. And so a passerby by the name of Simon is called to carry the cross the rest of the way. And they make their way there. And Jesus, of course, is nailed to the cross. And as he's hanging there, the passing crowds mock him. And the religious leaders mock him. He saved others. He can't save himself. Come down from the cross if you really are the son of God. Matthew adds this detail in Matthew 27, 44, in the same way even the criminals who were crucified with him kept taunting him. Guys on either side were taunting him as well, mocking him as well. Now the only bright part of the story is that one of those guys, as he was hanging there, had a change of heart. It's the only hopeful moment I see in the whole thing. At a certain point, he displayed an amazing amount of understanding and faith. He looked over at Jesus and he said, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? I love the faith behind the question. And Jesus said, yeah, today you'll be with me in paradise. He understood that this guy was a king of God's kingdom. He said, I just want to be part of that. Just remember me. And Jesus said, yes. That's, by the way, how we get right with God. Everybody. There's no other way to get right with God from my perspective except to put your trust in Jesus, to look to him, to be your savior, the one who's able to open the door for you. But these weren't the only ones that turned from Jesus. There's one other, and it was probably the hardest thing for him. God the Father turned away from Jesus. His own Father. There's a, there's a little bit of a mystery to this, I admit. But in Matthew 17, 45, we read from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word forsaken can be translated abandoned. Why have you abandoned me? Now, understand he knew the answer to the question. This is just a cry of his heart and soul. And understand this as well, that God's turning away from his son was not the same as any of the others up to this point. This was something that God the Father and God the Son had agreed to do. And why did the Father turn away? I believe at the very moment that Jesus took upon himself the sin of the world, God had to turn away. It's like in that moment, he, he became sin. Of course, Paul said that. Jesus became sin for us. Not a sinner, he became sin. So identified with the sin of the world that the, his own father had to turn away. He couldn't even look upon his own son. And I don't understand it, but in that moment, there was... For the first time in eternity, some kind of a gap between the Father and the Son. 
And yet we read in the Old Testament that God was pleased to crush his son. That's how it's worded in Isaiah 53. He was pleased to crush his son. Why? Because he would see the outcome. It was the very reason Jesus was dying on the cross, that through Jesus there could be many people populating heaven one day. In Isaiah 53, 11, we read, my righteous servant will justify many. The word justify means to declare righteous many, and he'll carry their iniquities. That's the Old Testament. It's remarkable. It is the story of the cross. Where God said, I'm pleased to do this because I see the outcome. I see beyond the cross. I see that because of what is going to happen and because of what you're going to endure, many people, many people will be brought in to the kingdom of heaven. So let me summarize. The disciples, of course, deserted Jesus out of fear. They were afraid, and of course, sometimes were afraid to identify with Christ. Religious leaders rejected him because they had their own agenda. We're, of course, supposed to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, but sometimes we have our own. Civil leaders lacked the courage to treat him justly. They were people pleasers, and God the Father even turned away What's the application for us? Well, the first one is this, that I'm convinced there's no other way a person can get right with God except through what Jesus did on the cross. And although it might be hard to either say it or hear it, I'm convinced it's an insult to what Jesus did for us to suggest there are many ways to get to heaven. It's an insult. That the creator of the universe would take on flesh and blood and die in our place and for our sin, and then people say there are many roads. If there were many roads, Jesus would not have died on the cross if there were any other way. Didn't Jesus ask that in the garden? Is there some other way? I want your will, but if, is there any other way? Take this cup from me. There was no other way. Why? Because the justice of God had to be satisfied against the sin of the world. A holy God can't just sweep all the sin of the world under the carpet as if it didn't exist. He has to judge it in righteousness, and he judged it upon his own son. And so I'm convinced Jesus is the only way. And, and of course, that's why Paul, the apostle, said there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. And Jesus himself made the same claim. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And we experience this forgiveness and we become part of God's family when we put our trust in Jesus to become our Savior. Have you done that? Come to a point where you realize you've sinned against God. You need a Savior. You can't fix it. You can't clean yourself up enough. Not enough soap in all the world to clean what we are. We're sinners through and through, our thoughts, our words, our deeds. We sin because we're sinners, not the other way around. You don't become a sinner because you sin. It's more that you are a sinner. That's why you sin, and a tree's known by its fruit. Look at the fruit, and you realize that's what I am. We can't fix that. We need a deliverer, and that's why God sent his son. And he died in our place. Of course, he rose from the dead, which demonstrates that God accepted the payment on our behalf. If the payment had not been accepted, Jesus would have stayed in the tomb, but he rose again. And our response is faith. That's the only response I find throughout all the Bible. Trust Jesus to be your Savior. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, will not suffer eternal harm, but will instead receive eternal life. 
You make him the object of your trust. And most do it through a prayer. God, I know I've blown it. I know I sinned and I can't fix it. I need you. I want your death and resurrection to count for me. I put my trust in you to be my savior. For, as John wrote, as many as receive him, Jesus, to those who believe in his name, God gives the privilege to become his children. For the rest of us, I, I just want to encourage you, especially in the culture of today, don't be ashamed of Jesus. And don't be ashamed of the fact that you're a Christian. And don't be ashamed of the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, that, that Jesus is it. I'm not ashamed of that message because it's the power of God to save someone, to deliver them from the penalty of their sin. Don't be ashamed. And maybe part of what an application of that even is I encourage you to invite your friends and relatives, loved ones to come for Easter to hear about Christ, hear the message. But maybe another application for us if we're Christians is I just encourage you to live for him. Because Paul wrote, Jesus died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him. When we understand what Jesus did for us, we should have an appreciation to say, you died for me. I want to now live for you. I am a Christian, a Christian. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for the price you were willing to pay on our behalf. We don't deserve it. We were like sheep who've gone astray, every one of us turning to his own way. But you laid upon your son the sin of us all so that through him we could have life. You declared him guilty so you could declare us not guilty. We are grateful. And we want, O oh Lord, to be firm in, in our faith and in our witness for Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.